Okay. Starting Matthew chapter 11 today. Last week we finished up uh, Matthew chapter 10. But I want to go back one week before that and review one more time. This is a very important subject concerning our present day as to how we know the Son of Man has not returned yet. What are some reasons the Bible gives, or what are some things that will happen in the Bible, according to the Bible, what things will happen in the end times before the Son of Man returns? Anna? Pestilences, okay. Daniel? Famines? Earthquakes? Alright. Yes? Rumors of wars? Okay. Two prophets? So two witnesses, the Antichrist? Caitlin? The temple has to be rebuilt, and what will happen in the temple with the Antichrist? It's called the abomination of desolation. He'll sit in the temple of God and declare himself to be God, which is what he's been trying to do from the beginning. That's why the devil was thrown out of heaven in the first place. And just like God was incarnate in human flesh in Jesus Christ, the devil will be incarnate in human flesh in the Antichrist. Not necessarily that he's came, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit like Jesus Christ was, but that he comes and lives inside of a man. And he, he becomes the devil incarnate. It's the Antichrist. Not an Antichrist, but the Antichrist. There's many Antichrists in the world. The word Antichrist simply means against Christ or false Christ. And the word Christ means anointed one. So false, anointed one, or against the anointed one. As many people going around claiming to be anointed by God, but they're not anointed by God. They're an Antichrist. Many people who, who claim to be for Christ, but they're actually against Christ. They're, they're an Antichrist. The Pope, the leader of the Roman Catholic Church, would be an Antichrist. But the Antichrist will come before Christ comes back. What else will happen before Christ comes back? Daniel? Yeah, Revelation 14, the angel flying and preaching the everlasting gospel is correct. What else? Something Daniel and, and Mr. John did yesterday. He went out and evangelized, right? What has to happen before Christ comes back, Jenna? That's right, the whole world has to be preached to. Not that the whole world will be saved, most won't be saved, but the whole world has to be preached to. So, in the great falling way, that could possibly happen right now. But these are things that have to happen before Christ comes back. And when Christ comes back, he'll gather together his saints to himself. So, we know that hasn't happened yet, so we know he hasn't come back yet. He hasn't come back secretly, he comes back what? Everyone will see. East to the west, there's lightning flashes. All his enemies will see him, the Bible says. Not happened. Christ is not coming back secretly. He's coming back openly for everyone to see. And his enemies will cry, whoa, and they'll say, rocks, fall upon us. And they won't. <laughs> if the rocks did fall, then they would just die and they'd go to hell. Wouldn't do them any good. But the great and terrible day of the Lord has, has come when that happens. We shall know. And we also talked about that the us evangelizing and being diligent about that will hasten the Lord's coming. Hasten his coming. 
Second Peter chapter three verse ten through thirteen says that. Okay, la- last week we talked about mostly we talked about other things too, but mostly about um, the doctrine of hell, and we see these this terminology used in our English Bibles like destruction, uh, destroy, and there's this group people call annihilationist. They believe in annihilationism. If you don't know how to spell, I'll spell it for you. A N N I H I L A T I O N I S M. Annihilationism. That's how you spell it. And that teaches that the wicked will eventually cease to exist in hell. They'll literally be obliterated, they'll be destroyed in a literal sense, they'll cease to exist. We saw this word never means that in the Bible. We looked at certain verses where it couldn't have meant that, uh, where those who were destroyed by the serpent in the desert. Those snakes that were biting, biting them when they were stuck in the 40 years in the desert, and, and God provided a way for them to be healed, to look upon the bronze serpent and be healed by faith. And they didn't do that, they were killed. But does, do, bronze, do serpents, snakes, have the ability to obliterate somebody? Of course not. Of course not. And we looked at sometimes when uh, the, the leaders of Israel wanted to destroy Jesus because of what he was preaching, what he was saying. Do other people have the ability to annihilate or cease to exist somebody else? No. The word translated destroy does never mean that. And we saw in many scriptures that there's an everlasting destruction. Therefore, destruction is everlasting. It means it does not, you, do not, you do not cease to exist in hell, for those who go there. You'll be there forever, perpetual, everlasting, unlimited duration of time. We looked at Mark chapter 9, very important passage where Jesus says many times over and over again, unquenchable, will shall not be quenched, shall never be quenched. And in this passage, the word quench means to put out or extinguish. But Jesus gives a negate to that. He negates and says never, not, will not. So, But if, they, everyone, if some, everyone's going to cease to exist at some point in time who's in hell, eventually, why have fires that never be quenched? It's useless fires. But we know this, the fires are forever because people will be there forever. We also looked at Matthew 25, where it talks about everlasting life and everlasting damnation. And sound principles of interpreting the Bible constrain us that if we're going to say we have everlasting life and an unending, perpetual life in the kingdom of God, therefore the ungodly must have an un- everlasting, perpetual life or death or destruction in hell. So the people who try to promote this idea of annihilationism. They're not consistent. They don't, know what the, they don't believe what the Bible says. And one of the main guys is a guy named Rob Bell. But in the end, annihilation is like a fairy tale. Fairy tales always end in what? Happily ever after. That's what annihilationists want. They want to be happily ever after. And in that sense, annihilation is just like a fairy tale. But we know in the end it will not be happily ever after for most people. For most will be in hell. It's a fairy tale, not based upon truth, not based upon God's word. It's a fairy tale. Okay, so we have to get these doctrines down because we know in the end times, one of the things that will happen is that many false teachers will rise up. People will gather to themselves false teachers who will tickle their ears and say what their itching ears want to hear. And what we need to hear is what the Bible actually says, not what we want to hear. Not what sinners want to hear, but what the Bible actually says. Unfortunately, most people don't want to hear what the Bible says. They want to hear what they want to hear. 
and accuse you of being unloving and being hateful and being bigoted and being prejudiced because you preach what the Bible says. Okay, uh, Matthew chapter 11, and we'll read through verse 19. Now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his twelve disciples that he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of the disciples and said to him, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. As they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet, for he is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who prepare your way before you. Surely I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I liken this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their companions and saying, We played the flute for you and did not dance. We mourned for you and did not lament. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look, a glutton and a wine-bibber a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is justified by her children. So see, Jesus went to preach and to teach, in verse 1, which was his calling, to preach and to teach, to caruso the gospel, preach and herald it in a public place, and to didasco, which is to teach, uh, methodically what the word of God actually says. And uh, that's the calling of every gospel minister, to teach and to preach as they're able to. And we see this situation with John the Baptist now. And it seems to me that John the Baptist has some doubts. But this is the same John the Baptist who in John chapter 1 declared about Jesus that he was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That he saw the Holy Spirit descend on him like a dove when he baptized him. So he had these things, he had these experiences, he had these uh, this knowledge of who Jesus was, but now he's seeming to doubt. And this goes to tell us that no matter how great your experience in the past has been with Jesus, and how genuine it's been, you're still susceptible to temptation. Even John the Baptist, who Jesus calls the greatest man born among women, even he was susceptible to temptation. Now, part of the problem, now, John the Baptist at this point in time, he got put, back in, put in jail back in Matthew 4, chapter 4 and verse 12. That's when he was put in jail. Right Jesus was done with his 40 days in the desert. So right, right as Jesus was beginning his ministry, we see that John the Baptist was put in jail. And um, so he was in jail probably for about six months to a year at this point in time. And he starts to doubt. 
Now, most of the Jews, unfortunately, had a misunderstanding concerning what the Messiah would come and do. They believed, the, for some reason, they believed the Messiah would come and destroy the Romans and take them out of the bondage or captivity the Romans had them under, the power the Romans had them under, and install his kingdom on earth right then. Now, I don't know whether John the Baptist went under this delusion or not, but uh, that could possibly be one of the reasons why he's having some doubts. He's thinking to himself, listen, I'm the, I'm the forerunner to this Messiah. I'm, the, I'm his main man. He even called himself the friend of the bridegroom, uh, like the best man of the bridegroom. You know, why am I sitting in jail? That's probably what's going through his head. Now, we don't know what's going on in the inner workings of John the Baptist's head, but that could possibly be what's going on in his head. If he's under this impression that Jesus was coming to establish his kingdom on earth right now. And we know that later on, John the Baptist's head gets cut off. Does anyone remember why he was put in jail in the first place? And what was the rebuke for? That's right. Herod took his brother's wife as his own. Adultery. He says, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herod had him put in jail, but he feared the multitudes and would not put him to death because they considered him a prophet. And when did he finally get his head cut off? Right. Very good, Caitlin. So, Herod the pervert had his girlfriend, his brother's wife, he was committing adultery with her, and then he had her daughter dance before him, uh, probably in an immoral way. That's why he was so ex excited, ecstatic about it, and he said, I'll give you anything, up to half my kingdom. So he's probably this old perverted man, and he was willing to give her whatever she wanted. And she consulted her mother, and her mother said, well, John, that's head on the platter right now. And he did it, and he went and cut off his head, because he made a vow in front of everybody that I'll give you anything up to half my kingdom. So the, it goes to show you, no matter how high up you are in God's chain, your head could be cut off. God, in your service to him, could demand that your head will be taken from you. So his head was cut off for rebuking, Someone who is committing adultery. Yes. That could happen to us. Okay, so he's having these doubts. Are you the coming one? The coming one is really just synonymous, are you the Messiah? That's what it means. Are you the Messiah? Are you the one coming? Or do we look for another? So there's some doubts going on in his mind. And Jesus answered John the Baptist's disciples to say, and go back and tell him what you see and hear. And uh, what he lists off here, blind seeing, the lame walking, leprous cleanse, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them, those are all messianic prophecies that Jesus is fulfilling. Uh, the first part of it is from Isaiah 35, verses 4 through 6. And the last part, the poor having the gospel preached to them, is Isaiah 61, verse 1. And John the Baptist, knowing the scriptures like he did, would have known Jesus was saying, basically, yes. But there's a principle that Jesus is putting forth here. Judge my fruit. 
Judge my works, John. Do you want to know who I am? Judge my fruit. Judge my works. And that's what we should be able to say to anyone who says, are you really a Christian? Judge my fruit. Judge my works. Look at my life. I follow Christ. I obey Him. And there's, only two, there's really only two fruits or two proofs that you can know that you're a Christian. One, that you, the Spirit of God testifies within you that you're a child of God. That's Romans 8, 16. So the Spirit of God cries out within you, Abba, Father, the Bible says. You know you're a child of God because the Spirit of God is within you, testifying that you're a child of God. Because God does not give His Holy Spirit but to His children. And the second fruit that you know you're a Christian is that you actually obey God. You're keeping His commandments. Doesn't mean you can't sin. Doesn't mean you don't have the ability to sin. But sin should definitely be the exception in your life, not the rule. There should be a drastic change from your non-Christian life to your Christian life. But even within verse 5, Jesus did these things literally and physically, but there's a spiritual application here. He makes the blind sinner see the truth. The sinner who's dead in this trespasses and sins, he makes alive. And we know that dead in the Bible, when it comes to being dead spiritually, it means that you're, se you're separated from God the Father in relationship to Him. And according to Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, sins separate you from God, even to the point where He won't hear your prayers. That's, of course, the broken and contrite prayer over your sin. But Christ came to wash away our sins which makes us spiritually alive again because we're brought back together to a right relationship with God because the thing that separates us, our sin, is washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. So the spiritually dead are made alive again. That spiritually blind are able to see. The spiritually lame are able to walk in the spirit that they won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. Whereas before, walking according to your own strength, they sin, 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 sin. Jesus said at the end of this passage, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. The spiritually deaf hear the voice of God. They hear him calling to them. And we know from our Beatitudes, our studying in the Beatitudes, that the poor are rich. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. So the, the poor sinner must realize they are spiritually bankrupt. Before God, they have nothing to bring to him. And Jesus is doing all these things with this preaching, physically and spiritually. And Jesus says this last statement, almost like a call of, of pleading to John the Baptist. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Or not caused to stumble because of me. In Luke chapter 20, Jesus says something very similar to this. Luke 20, verses 17 through 18. The parable of the wicked vine dressers, talking about the Jews there, and how they, the father sent his servants and his son, they killed them all of them, and tried to take his inheritance. And Jesus says in Luke 20, verse 17, Then he looked at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. 
her falls in that stone will be broken. But whenever it falls, it will grind him to powder. So if you fall on the stone of Jesus Christ, you will be broken. Brokenness is a good thing. The sacrifice of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. But whoever it falls, it will grind to powder. Judgment. So you don't want to stumble because of what Jesus Christ said, because of what he did. Many people, when we preach in the open air, we preach the words of Jesus and they reject it. They reject, 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 and they say, oh, it's because of what you're saying, I don't want to be a Christian. Well, no kidding. You don't like what I have to say because it's the truth. And you don't want to obey it, but it's the words of Jesus. And they're stumbling because of his words. Because of him and his life and what he said. And in Second Peter, uh, First Peter, I'm sorry, First Peter chapter 2, verse 6 through 8, Peter said, Therefore it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, a lay in Zion, a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes in him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone with the, which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word, to which they also were appointed. So, you stumble over the stone, a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, and you'll be grinded to powder. And it says in ver at the end of verse 8, some people get confused with what it's saying here, they stumble being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. And some Calvinists will have you believe that they were appointed disobedience. But no, they, the people who are disobedient are appointed to judgment, to stumble. That's what it's saying. And, and Jesus is saying to John the Baptist, don't stumble because of me. Maybe you have a misunderstanding of me. Maybe you thought you shouldn't be in jail. That, you know, some people believe today that Christianity is, is just uh, all, all good things. Nothing bad should happen to you. Nothing bad should happen to you. And maybe John about had a little bit of the, that mindset. I really don't know what's going on in the inner workings of his mind. All we can really do is, is kind of uh, put the scriptures together and try to figure it out. But Jesus is telling him, don't be stumbled. Don't stumble because of me. Don't be offended because of me. Don't depart from the faith. He's asking this question, are you the one or should we look for another? Yes, we should stay broken to some degree before God, not only because of the sinners who are going to hell, not just family members and friends, but complete strangers as well, but also because of what Christ did for us. And our life is lived out of gratitude for what he did for us on the cross. Yes, this should continue, you're right. And then after Jesus finished saying this, the disciples of John departed. And as they were departing, Jesus started to talk about John the Baptist. 
And he said, you know, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed, which is something that kind of flows back and forth and is easily broken by the wind. Was John the Baptist someone who was easily broken? Was he swayed about back and forth? No, he was a strong man. He preached hard, unashamedly, with courage and boldness. Striking words at times. And they know that it was a really a rhetorical question because Jesus knew they didn't go out to see that. The whole reason they went out in the first place is because they knew they were astonished at how bold this man was. How striking he was. And when people see another person being so bold and so striking, it piques their interest. They think, man, what is this guy? This guy must really mean what he says. Even if I don't believe with him, he must really mean it. It's only someone who really means what they say will stand up in, in, in the wilderness and begin to proclaim these things that no one else is proclaiming. And that's one of the reasons when you stand up in the open air in a college campus street, people will draw around because they're like, man, this guy really means what he says. Even if they walk away in total disagreement, they're astonished to some degree. People walk me out, me and John both, I, over and over again. At the end of the open, man, you know, I don't, you know, I don't disagree with everything you say or do, but man, you really guys have some guts to stand up there and do that. They'll say that. There's no praise to us. The righteous are as bold as a lion, the Bible says. The wicked flee when no man pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. And all righteous should be that way, should be bold about the truth. And he was like that. But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in the king's house. What kind of garments did John the Baptist wear? Camel's hair. Kind of, kind of rough. It's not known for, you know, you don't see camel hair shirts around these days. You see silk shirts, you know, for the rich people. And you see 100% cotton, maybe. But, you, you know, camels, never, the fur never cut on. It wasn't like this big fad that it's real breathable and they got nice colors and it feels comfortable and nice and soft in your skin. No, it would never have caught on for that. So he, he didn't wear soft clothing. He didn't wear nice clothing. And um, what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. In what way was John the Baptist more than a prophet? He was a prophet, but what, what way was he more than a prophet? Had any prophet had the calling that he had ever? Would any prophet after him have his calling? He was the forerunner, the specific, individual, one and only herald of the coming king. Now, Christians today are a type of John the Baptist because we're heralding Christ's second coming. But he had one person to herald his first coming. And he was it. And we see quoted here at the end of Matthew, 10, Matthew 11, 10, we have Malachi 3, 1 quoted there. And um, another time when it's asked, of John the Baptist, what he is, he quoted Isaiah 40 in verse 3. Let me just read it to you. Isaiah 40 in verse 3 says, No, that's not right. Well, maybe my reference is wrong here. But there's another time where he quoted something else, something in Isaiah. I can't remember exactly what it is here. Maybe it's Isaiah 29.8. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. I don't know if that's it either. But anyway, I have the wrong reference here. But he, he's, he's a prophet that's been prophesied about by the prophets as one who's the coming before the Lord, before the Lord to make his straight his path straight 
So he's more than a prophet in the sense that he has a different calling than any other prophet has ever had or ever will have. It does say Isaiah 43. Oh, Isaiah 40 and verse 3. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So I was right. I must have been looking at it wrong. Isaiah 40 and verse 3. So these are all things that are predictions about John the Baptist to come, but the prophets in the Old Testament, they, they got them made predictions about the Messiah. John the Baptist is going to see these predictions fulfilled. There's a difference there. So the prophets in the Old Testament prophesied about Jesus. John the Baptist saw him face to face. He saw the fulfillment of these predictions. And he says, Surely I say to you, among those born of women, there has not been one greater than John the Baptist. Not been one. So he's had the greatest calling of all time. Uh, and I think it's probably greater in more senses than just that. Probably greater in the fact that he was holy. Uh, he was blameless. Uh, he was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb, the Bible says. When uh, the angel's talking to Zechariah's father in John 1, he mentions that. He goes on to say, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Hmm, interesting. See, John the Baptist got to proclaim the coming of the king. But he died before the king died on the cross. He died before the new covenant was installed. He died before the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost. So, the least in the kingdom, those who are least in God's kingdom, who are Christians, who get to experience the new covenant, are greater than he. Not greater than him in, in, his, in the way he lived, but greater than him in calling in the fact that we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, regenerated in that sense, we experienced the forgiveness of sins like, like no one in the Old Covenant did. And really, John the Baptist was the last, even though he's talked about in the New Testament, he's the last of the Old Testament prophets. He's the bridge between the Old and the New. Because he comes to proclaim Christ who is coming, who installs the New Covenant by his death on the cross. So it's in that sense, I believe, it's talking about that he's greater and that and we are greater than he, even if we are the least in the kingdom of heaven. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. Matthew chapter 21, and verse 28. Jesus tells the parable of the two sons. He says, but what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not. But afterward he regretted it and went. And then he came to the second and said, Likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of these two did the will of his father? They said to him, The first. Jesus said to them, I surely I say to you, the tax collectors, and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but tax collectors and harlots believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterward relent and believe him. So these people 
who claimed to have the kingdom of God, claimed to know the truth, they went out and saw John the Baptist, who they knew who wasn't a reed swaying in the wind. They knew he was a prophet. But yet they don't believe in the one who he prophesied about, who he talked about. So these people who claim to have the kingdom, claim to have the truth, claim to have the understanding of the scriptures, did not take the kingdom of God right there before them. But the others, when they saw it, they rejected it. They grabbed onto it. The harlots and tax, the people who they considered the worst sinners in the world, they grabbed onto it. And if you want to be a part of the kingdom of God, you must grab onto it and hold onto it with all your might. No letting go. No matter what the cost to yourself. That's what it's referring to here. It's not talking about Christians being violent in a physical sense. That's nonsense. It's talking about grabbing onto the kingdom of God and doing whatever it takes to grab onto it. And that's what the people who heard John the Baptist preaching did. The people who heard Jesus did. The religious people of his day rejected him. What's nothing to do with them? They're the ones who put him to death in the first place. But those who saw their rejection clung on to Jesus and John the Baptist and their message as it never had before. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, who was, like I said, last of the Old Testament prophets. And if you're willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. Now, when we went through teaching Revelation, we talked about this a little bit, I think, about who the two witnesses are. And Jesus says that he is Elijah who is to come. But is he Elijah in the literal sense? Like Malachi 4, uh, verses 4 through 6 refers to. Let's just go there real quick and let's see if John the Baptist will fit what Malachi 4, 4 through 6 is talking about in a literal sense here. In fact, let's, just, let's start in verse 1, and let's see if, if this is talking about when Jesus came the first time, or let's see if it's talking about Jesus coming the second time. Matthew, Malachi 4 and verse 1. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly will be stubble. And the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts. That will leave them neither root nor branch. But to you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall arise, with healing in his wings, and you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. You shall trample the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in horror for all Israel, with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the hearts of the children to the fathers, that come and strike to the earth with a curse. So this seems to be talking to me about the second coming of Jesus Christ. Not the first coming. The second coming. So this literal Elijah who will come, will come before the second coming of Christ. Not before the first coming of Christ. But he does come in some sense as Elijah. And let's just look through a couple of passages here to see in what sense he came as Elijah. John chapter 1. In verse 19. And this is when the priest and Levites came out to ask John the Baptist some questions. 
in John 1.19. Now this is a testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. They said to him, Who are you? That we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, and this is where he quotes Isaiah 40, and verse 3, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now those who were sent were from the Pharisees, and they asked him, saying, Why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize the water, but there stands one among you whom you did not know, as he who coming after me is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. These things were done in Betharba, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptized. So John said, I am not Elijah. That's what he said. Jesus said, he is Elijah, who is to come. Let's go to uh, Matthew chapter 17, in verse 9 through 13. Matthew 17, and verses 9 through 13. This is Jesus talking, uh, talking to the uh, disciples after his transfiguration on the mount. So now as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. The disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Jesus answered and said to him, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I tell you, I say to you that Elijah has already come and did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. The disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. So the first time Elijah comes, or in some sense Elijah comes, in the form of John the Baptist, um, he suffers, and then the Son of Man suffers. The second time that Elijah comes, before the great and terrible day of the Lord, Elijah will dish out some suffering. Now, Elijah will suffer then until he'll die, and the people will glory about his death for, I think, three days. But in the end, Elijah rises from the grave, and Jesus comes back, not as a suffering servant, but as a conquering king. So there's a corollary there. The first time Elijah came, before Jesus came, there's suffering for both. The second time they come, there's judgment from both. Okay, so in that sense, Elijah has already come. But let's look at Luke chapter 1. I hope that's what it says there. My handwriting's not as neat as it used to be. Typing so often, I don't really write this as often as I used to. Luke chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. This is the uh, angel of the Lord talking to Zacharias. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and disobedient to make wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared to the Lord, for the Lord. Okay, so that's actually a quote from Malachi 4 there. So in what sense did he come as Elijah? He came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. But the literal Elijah won't come until the very end as one of the two witnesses. 
as one of the two witnesses. All right, and we see the two witnesses. If you want to read about that on your own time, Revelation chapter 11, verses 3 through 12. And what you'll see there in that, in that passage that the Elijah who comes in the end times, one of the two witnesses, actually stops rain from falling on the earth. Sounds familiar. Exactly what he did in the Old Testament. Okay? And if you want to read more about what uh, when Elijah transferred his power over to Elisha, it was 2 Kings chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 18. And what you see there is that not only did John the Baptist walk in the power and spirit of Elijah, but Elisha walked in the spirit and power of Elijah. He actually asked for a double portion. He said to him, if you see me go up from your presence, then yes, God will grant that to you. And he did. And the ironic thing about the Elijah being one of the two witnesses that when Elisha came back over the, the uh, I think it was the Jordan here, yeah, came back over the, the river, the yeah, Jordan River, bank of the Jordan, and the sons of the, of the prophets saw him, they asked, 50 of them asked if they can go search for Elijah. So they didn't believe he was actually gone. And they went out and searched and did not find him. So it's interesting that they went and searched for him and he's actually going to come back. One of two witnesses before the very end. Okay, so John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah, and the literal Elijah will come in the last days. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. That should tell them. He's saying, listen, it's very common, it's, it's very clear that John the Baptist came as Elijah, and I am the one he prophesied about. Why won't you trust in me? Why won't you believe what he said? I'm doing these other things that, that the, that the uh, Messiah will do. Why won't you trust in my works? And check my fruit. And believe in me and trust in me. He says, but what, what should I like in this generation? And the word there for generation doesn't necessarily mean all the people at that time. It means people who came from a certain family, a certain race, uh, successive members in a lineage. So he's really talking about the Jews there. He's saying, what should I like in this group of Jews? This people who are hearing me speak. Because it's like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to their companions and saying, we played the flute for you and did not dance. We mourned for you, to you and you did not lament. So he's saying, listen, we, we had joyful singing and dancing and you didn't like it. We had funeral type mourning and you didn't like it. And if, as you'll see here in the next couple of verses, Jesus is saying, you, you can't be satisfied. No matter what we do, you are not satisfied. And he goes on to say, he says, for John came neither eating nor drinking. They say he has a demon. So John was kind of separated from all that stuff. And they said he has a demon. But Jesus came eating and drinking. And they said, look, a glutton and a winebibber, a friend of tax letters and sinners. And that's what they said. So, so they're not satisfied no matter which way you go. And it's going to show you, we don't preach to satisfy the world. We don't preach for their approval. We don't live for their approval. We don't live for their satisfaction. Because they'll never be satisfied with sinful hearts. They always find some kind of excuse, some kind of reason to give, to not follow, to not obey. John, he had a demon, man. Jesus, he's a glutton and a friend of sinners. So they have all kinds of excuses to justify 
their lack of following them. But in the end, will they have any excuses? God leaves no excuses for those who don't follow him. There'll be no excuses. They can't say, oh, it was because the preacher was so mean to me. They can't say, oh, it's my parents' fault. They can't say, oh, that hypocrite preacher who preached against homosexuality and became a homosexual himself. They can't say, oh, the church is full of hypocrites. They won't be able to say any of these things. Oh, you didn't give me enough time, God. I was, I was going to do it tomorrow. There'll be no excuses on that day. Yeah, why don't you show me some signs and wonders? Do some miracles for me. Jesus said a wicked and perverse generation looks for a sign, acts for a sign. Signs don't save anybody. And Jesus finishes up this last verse of verse 19, says, but wisdom is justified by her children. Now I want to look at Luke 7. This is the same account of this very passage here and give us some more insight into what Jesus is saying here by saying that wisdom is justified by her children. And justified means made right or declared righteous or to proclaim righteousness or just righteousness and justice are very similar. So it's almost like saying, but wisdom is declared as righteous by her children. Okay? In the Luke 7 account of this, in Luke 7, let's see here, in verse 28, Jesus says, For I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. But he was least in the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard him, even the tax collectors, justify God, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. Now, once again, this word justify does not mean that God is made uh, right. God hasn't done any sinning. Not justified, but God is declared as righteous by the taxers and by the harlots, by God. Because they were just towards them. He was just towards them. And the children of God will rise up and declare God as being just. Even the sinners say, oh, he's... I had this guy tell me this past week uh, at the University of Louisville. He said, uh, you think it's just for God to punish people forever in hell? I said, of course I do. For me to declare God as being unjust... I would need to have a standard by which to judge unjust and just. But since God is a standard of justice and injustice, therefore everything he does is just. So of course it must be just for God to do that. If it wasn't, he wouldn't do it. And I asked this man what his standard of justice was. He's an atheist and he had no standard of justice to judge by. All he could basically say is, I don't like that God does that. But you not liking something does not make it go away. You know, what are my children, maybe after I've disciplined them, say, I don't like you, and they can put the sheet over the top of their head in their bed, and it's not going to make daddy disappear. You know, it's like that old peekaboo game. Where's Eli? Peekaboo, there he is. He didn't go away because I closed my eyes. He stayed there. And just because a sinner does not like God's justice, it's not like the punishment of hell forever for sinning against him. Does that mean it goes away? 
or that God goes away, or that he ceases to exist. But wisdom, and all the treasure of wisdom knowledge is found in Christ, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, is justified by her children. As Luke 7 says, even the tax collectors declared the righteousness of God, the justice of God, that they made them, that they were made right before God. And because they took part in John's baptism and they were following Jesus too, they will be made right before God. Because the Pharisees and other Jews rejected such things. They'll make all kinds of excuses for it. It's not going to make a difference in the end. Not going to make a difference in the end. Okay, so we see a little glimpse that John the Baptist doubts today, I believe, and is he just talking about him and his calling and why he is greater than any other man born among women and why we're greater than him because we're a part of the kingdom of heaven and and what the John the Baptist was, what he was as far as Elias is concerned and, and what part he took in the ministry of Jesus. Okay. All right, I have one request to make you before we have questions, objections, and or points you want to make is that Speak up a little louder because some of the people who are watching the videos, they want to hear what you have to say. So just speak up a little louder when you talk, and I'll do my best to repeat your question too. That way people who are listening at home, the hundreds of people who are listening at home, can, can take part in the question and answer session too and hear what you're saying a little better. That would be my problem. I, I ask a lot of questions too quietly, I suppose. That's okay. And the, uh, the question I have is in uh, verse 14... Jesus says, if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. Mm -hmm. And uh, is it possible that the literal Elijah and John the Baptist could be the two, the two witnesses there in Jerusalem? Uh, I don't know. Uh, then you'd have two Elijahs. Right, but we've all, all the, you, in fact, during the teaching, you explained that... Um, just because John the Baptist is called Elijah doesn't mean he's literally Elijah, but right. um, maybe spiritually or this uh, in kind of a indirect way Jesus is saying that this is the one, this is the other messenger that uh, who returns uh, with Elijah. Uh, I guess that's possible. I mean, I, I really don't know who the second witness is. Uh, I don't think that's what Jesus is saying, though. I think he's saying that he came in the spirit and power of Elijah and that just like and Elijah's going to come at, before the beginning when he comes back again next time, and Elijah came this time. So I don't think we can ascertain from what Jesus is saying that he is, but it's, it's always a possibility that John the Baptist is, yeah. Just like it could be John the Apostle, or it could be Enoch, or it could be even Moses. You know, those are all possibilities, too. So. I just thought it was interesting. It says, he, he that has ears to hear, let him hear. If you're willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. Why, why would he put it in this, this pretense that this is like a, he is to come? At this point, he's, he hasn't died yet. No, he has not died yet. And uh, I, I think he clarifies it when he says in Matthew 17 and verse 11, indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. And that's referring to uh, the Son of Man coming back. And uh, but I say to you, Elijah has come already. So there's a sense that he's come already, but there's a sense he's going to come in first and restore all things as well. So there's, those are the two senses that Elijah is coming. So um, I, don't, I, don't, I personally don't think John the Baptist is one of them, but it, it could possibly be it. I, I still think it's, it's Enoch as the other witness. 
And I, I, I haven't been, even Tim Warner didn't convince me that his, I think he said it was John the Apostle. I've heard people say it was Moses. I'm still convinced it's Enoch, simply for the fact that he was taken away like Elijah was. There was no more, and he walked with God. So it doesn't have to be that, but it would make sense to me that two men who had never really died would be the witnesses, and then they actually would die. And they resurrected. Yeah. And then everyone would have died at some point in time, everyone, those who are alive when Christ comes back. So... That's what I think about that. Anyone else have questions? Objections or anything you want to add? Yes, wisdom is justified by her children. The word justified there uh, we think of it in a salvation sense. We think um, that justified only means we're saved, we're made right before God. That's what it means. So as sinners, we're not right before God, but God makes us right before him through the blood of Jesus, what justified means. But it also means to be declared righteous or declared just. Uh, so the children of wisdom, who are God's children, who are John the Baptist's children from his ministry, Jesus' ministry, people, children from his ministry, will rise up and declare John the Baptist and God and Jesus as being just, as being righteous, and what they say and in what they do. And that's the reason I went to the Luke 7 account, because the tax collectors, when they heard what Jesus said, uh, they, rose, they rose up and they justified God, it said having been baptized with the baptism of John. Whereas the Pharisees, Pharisees would not dare let those people in the kingdom, basically because they thought, well, you've done so much, you, you couldn't possibly be part of the kingdom. Jesus is saying, yes, you can. And you're entering in, as we looked in uh, another passage, I think it was Matthew 21, 28-32, which said that harlots and tacklers are entering before you, talking to the Pharisees. So wisdom is justified, declared righteous, declared as being just by her children. And the children of God will rise up and declare God as being just and righteous in his doings with them. He's gone above and beyond what he ever had to do with us. So all we deserve is his justice and wrath for our sins. But he's been so kind and merciful towards us and righteous towards us that he's allowed us to become children of God. By repentance and faith. I think that's what it's referring to here. And even though these people who are rejecting God for every little silly reason, they're never satisfied. Oh, we, we played the heart, we played the flute and you didn't dance. We uh we, we mourned for you and you didn't lament. They're trying to find every kind of excuse for not becoming a follower of John the Baptist or Jesus, which leads them to be the children of God, and they'll make every excuse in the book. But they'll be in no excuses in the end. And the children of God will rise up and say, you are righteous, you are just. Even when they throw our parents or our brothers and sisters or our families into hell, we will say, you are just. may seem hard to imagine right now. But he is righteous, he is just in all his doings. And people will have no excuse on that day. They can't say, oh, you were this way or you were that way. I didn't like this, I didn't like that. 
They, I mean, there will be no excuse on Judgment Day for that. And this one issue is really a kind of a, I think, a winnowing fan or of hay fork, like we use a hay fork, right? Mm-hmm. And that clears when the, when the person says they've become a Christian. We have to, uh, as a Christian, submit to these things, or we're actually not really believing Jesus. Right. And that, that most uh, will not enter the kingdom. It's right. a narrow gate, a narrow way. Right. And we think about the people around us, how that narrowness uh, comes into reality uh, in our lives and should cause great concern in our soul for them. Um, but that we should please God and say, Amen, Lord. So as you say, the Queen of uh, the South will rise up in judgment. Right. And you uh, said that, uh, that Sodom and Gomorrah will rise up in the judgment. Yeah, I remember while I was preaching at Tuna Beach, I can't remember which day it was, and there was this couple listening off in the distance that came around, and, and the wife came up and said, "Well, you know, who did who did Cain marry?" And I said, "Well, he he married one of his sisters." And we even went to the Bible passage and I talked about it a little bit, and. And they, they were using, they, she didn't want to accept my answer. And I said, listen, listen, man. I said, this is not going to be something you can say to God. God, you know, I didn't know who Cain's sister was going to be, therefore I didn't trust in you. This silly little objection is not going to stand before God in judgment day. He's not going to say, oh, you know what, you're right. I was too fuzzy about that, too hazy about that. I didn't tell you exactly who Cain's, sister was, uh, Cain's wife was, therefore I'll let you in. Not the way it's going to work. And people have these objections in their head and they think it substantiates their decision to reject Jesus. God never says that you'll know everything in this world. But what he does reveal, we can't understand. It's very clear to me that Cain's sister, that's the only option he had, was his wife. And back then, before the law of Moses, there was no laws against incest. So it was okay. Now there are laws against that. But the point I'm making is that these people, they try to make every little excuse in the book for not coming to Christ, but they're not going to have any excuse on Judgment Day. They're not going to have any excuses. It's like Romans 1 says.